This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Here comes Peter Cottontail, hopping down the bunny trail. Hippity hopping, Easter's on its way. This time of year brings a lot of religious holidays, and one of those is Easter. Easter is, for many Christians, the most important religious holiday. But when you think about Easter and how it goes today, it might seem like something of a mystery how this extremely religious day came to be the celebration of childhood, plastic grass, and chocolate that it is today. And that's actually true of a lot of aspects of modern life. We depend every day on technology tested and developed using rigorous scientific methodology. We have organizations that at least strive to ensure that all groups of people are treated equally, and so on. But how did we get this way, when only a few hundred years ago our medieval ancestors were covered in lice, jousting, and dying of the plague? In his book, Mysteries of the Middle Ages and the Beginning of the Modern World, author Thomas Cahill argues that our world, the modern world, has its roots in that very era, specifically in the brand of Christianity that organized the lives and informed the intellectual and political beliefs of medieval Europeans. I spoke to Cahill a few months ago, and this one day before Easter broadcast seemed like a good time to revisit that conversation about how these faraway-seeming people helped to make the world that we live in today. A little later on the show, we'll look at one modern tradition that's found a way into a very old celebration. But first, let's hear my interview with Thomas Cahill. Thomas Cahill, welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Nora. Let me ask you first, what is the story that happens in this book? What what are you talking about in this book? The the new book is called Mysteries of the Middle Ages. uh, And it it really is um, the Catholic contribution to Western civilization. Medieval people didn't really think of themselves as Catholics, but looking back, that's what they look like to us. And um, they thought of themselves as Western Christians or Latin Christians or Roman Christians or something like that. But that's how it looks to us, and it's it's as good a way, as good a label to put on it as any. And what you have in this period, you have the the beginnings of a number of, of either entirely new things or things that had been lost and are now recovered. The entirely new thing is feminism, the beginning of a distinct role for women in the world, which had really never occurred in earlier societies. It's only a beginning, but it's it's an enormous opening and an enormous change. You have the re-beginning of science, The Greeks had been very interested in science, which they called natural philosophy. And that was all largely lost after the fall of Rome, so that you had um, a world of magic and a world of strange little people running around casting spells on other people and things like that. You didn't really have science. But gradually, there was a recovery of Greek texts And that sparked the beginning of science in the modern sense. This was true of uh, England and especially of Oxford University. The third huge new thing, which was really a kind of revision of an old thing, was the rediscovery of art and literature, or the arts and literature. It was a rediscovery of symbolic thinking and symbolic... um, language and and imagination. Now, these things had never been entirely lost. There had always been some literature, some art, 
but it was it was extremely confined. But at the height of the Middle Ages, in the 12th, 13th, and early 14th centuries, you have this extraordinary burgeoning. You have it in the plastic arts in somebody like Giotto, and you have it in literature in somebody like Dante. These are great formulators, great pioneers, who, who bring their own art to a perfection that had really never been seen before. And in important ways, this art and this literature is different from anything that had ever happened before. One, I have to say that the title of your book is Mysteries of the Middle Ages. I have to admit that I find the Middle Ages to be something of a mystery anyway. Tell me what people uh, tell me what people know about the Middle Ages. Well, we know a lot about the Middle Ages. It's not an unknown period. We have lots and lots and lots of documentation. The reason it appears mysterious is that it is so very different from our time. And yet it is the beginning of the modern world. There are many changes going on that create the beginnings of modern sensibility during the Middle Ages. We no longer have knights and their ladies and kings and queens. Even if we have kings and queens, they don't matter as much as they once did. And it's hard to put ourselves back into that time. Comparisons to this time are still made. Uh, So we do have some sense of it, but it was a time in which everyone had a role, whereas now we live in a time where no one has a role. No one has a defined role. It was once the case that I was a shoemaker, my father was a shoemaker, my son would be a shoemaker. I had a place within the hierarchy of my town. Everyone knew who I was. I was necessary to the economy and the well-being of my town. I fit in somewhere. There's far more anxiety in our world because no one has, or very few people, have roles like that anymore. We make our own roles, and we have to do it on a daily basis. And if we don't succeed in keeping our head above water in some sense, we drown, and we don't have the communal support that once held up the shoemaker, for instance, or or anyone in any you know the candle maker, the the man who um, who re-roofed my house every spring. Each of these people had a definite role in the society. We've changed all of that in some ways for the better and in some ways for the worse. But I think it's that aspect of the Middle Ages that is particularly different from our world, and that makes it therefore harder for us to imagine what it would have been like. It makes it harder for us to imagine not just the perils of that world, but the contentments of that world. It sounds like a pretty contentment-filled world. What were some of the, uh, what were some of the perils? Well, it was, it, it, uh, death was much more evident uh, than it is in our world. The mortality rates, by our standards, were horrible. Even in the most poverty-stricken parts of the third world today, the mortality rates are better, uh, unless there's a plague going on or you know a, a, a current famine or something like that. The mortality rates are better 
than they were in the Middle Ages. And why is that? Because the medicine is better, basically. Why is the medicine better? Because in the Middle Ages, people began to think seriously about medicine again and to try to do something about mortality rates. But it took from then till now to get to the stage that we're at. But that's, that's really, I mean, the way death stalked ordinary life in the Middle Ages would leave most of us unable to sleep at night. Uh, so it's not surprising when you go into a medieval church and you look around at the art that very often the figure of death is there, crouching among the people in the scene because he was very present so to such an extent that he almost seemed a figure of their lives. One thing that all these people that you talk about in your book have in common is that they do come out of this Catholic context. Actually, the uh, the title of the hardcover version of the book is The Rise of Feminism, Science, and Art from the Cults of Catholic Europe. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. The mysteries of the Middle Ages, in my view, are not, you know, they're not the mysteries of detective fiction. Um, the word mystery is originally used by the Greeks to mean the worship of the serial goddess which was a very secret form of worship that nobody who was not a devotee was supposed to know about. So the mysteries were secret. When the Christian church emerges from the Greek world, it names its own rituals mysteries. What we in the Western world call sacraments in uh, the Greek East are called mysteries. And that word was used of all sorts of things. It came to be used, for instance, of the particular worship or devotion to the Virgin Mary. It was used of the particular worship or devotion to the elements of the Eucharist, to the bread and the wine. And interestingly, both of those mysteries become the trigger for what happens during the Middle Ages. The mystery of the Virgin Mary was everywhere from about the 10th, 11th centuries. More and more churches were de- were dedicated to her, for instance, rather than to her son, who was the central figure of Christianity. And if you looked up at the apse of a cathedral, as likely as not, rather than seeing Christ the judge, you would see Mary the mother with a little baby on her lap. This happened more and more and more, and those visual images began to change the sensibility of the Western world to such an extent that there was a real shift in cultural sensibility going on that enabled people to imagine a woman in a central role, which would not have been possible, say, in the dreary 8th century (laughs) It just would never have happened. In a similar way, the bread and wine of the Eucharist became the basis, in certain ways, for science. There was great controversy as to what the Eucharist was, you know, which we know we know from the other end of it, the fights between Catholics and Protestants over transubstantiation or consubstantiation or is it just a symbol or what is it anyway you know what did what did Christ mean by it what does what should we mean by it what do we think we're doing 
when we have a mass or a memorial of the Lord's Supper or whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and the beginning of those arguments went way back into the Middle Ages. What? Well, what, what is this anyway? Uh, and you have a number of different answers to that question from philosophers or theologians, if you like. But they are then people who are forced back on even more basic questions. Well, what is bread anyway? Can one substance change into another substance? How does the material world come to be? How did we come to be? Well, these are basically, they are philosophical questions, but they're also scientific questions. And they begin to form the basis of medieval science, uh, which does begin to ask questions like, what is matter? What can we do with it? Can it be transformed? So that along with the questions about the Eucharist, you have all through the Middle Ages questions about, well, could we turn mud into gold? Is that possible? Could we, do, could we somehow do that? Boy, that would be a trick to pull off. So you have strange people working with substances and trying to see what they can do with them. Well, it's the beginning of chemistry. It's the beginning of, of, of chemical laboratories. At first, they may seem more like magicians than like scientists, but gradually they do discover many things about the properties of the material world, and they become closer and closer to what we would consider to be modern scientists. In a similar but different way, the artists and writers are influenced by the idea that God became man, another mystery the mystery of the incarnation. If God became man, then the world, as we experience it, the material world, is somehow elevated to a new level. And whereas the Greeks thought that matter was something to get rid of as soon as possible, that what we wanted was a spiritual world, we wanted to be free of our bodies, the medievals aren't so sure about that. And that's because of the mystery of the incarnation and they begin to celebrate the material world in a way that had never been done in pagan times, had never been done by the Greeks and the Romans. They begin to like the idea of having bodies, of being bodies. And so you have a new kind of art as a result that is much more interested in celebrating human experience and human bodies and human interactions. And you have a new kind of poetry that's much more interested in those same celebratory experiences than was ancient poetry, which is far, far, far more pessimistic than anything that you find, especially in the high Middle Ages. Once you have people like Dante getting underway, you have a great upsurge in what I think we can only, looking back on it, called op call optimism. It, it pushes aside the pessimism of the pagan world, of the Greco-Roman world, which in many ways, uh, that, that world, that Greco-Roman world, is, a, is, of course, one of our great influences, the other being the Judeo-Christian world. So we have these two great sets of influences that finally, for the first time in the Middle Ages, interact 
with one another and interact successfully and interestingly and with a, a great benefit to us. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest in the studio this week is Thomas Cahill. Cahill's a Fordham alum, and he is the author of Mysteries of the Middle Ages, out from Anchor Books. A little later, one of the mysteries of modern life solved, why Coke tastes so much better at this time of year. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Thomas Cahill. So we're talking about sort of the idea of faith being one of the bases of modern science. And that leads me to wonder about sort of the worldview of medieval people, because I consistently, when I when I look at history, one of the things I find it really hard to get my mind around is the fact that people just thought about the world and life and everything in a fundamentally different way from how we think about it. How would somebody from in the Middle Ages have seen the world? What would have been sort of the big things that they thought about? Uh, even the word faith is a word that we use a lot more often, funnily enough, I think, than they did in the Middle Ages. And the reason that we do is because only some people have faith. Some people will talk about their faith as others will sit and listen quietly and wonder what on earth they're talking about or not be able to imagine such a condition of mind for themselves there were no atheists in the Middle Ages. You can look and look and look. You, you find extremely evil people who actually end up taking the side of Satan, but you don't find real atheists, people who say, well, there is no other world. It's not there. It's just the, only the world we have. That's all there is. Um, so that, that that's another way that it's very hard for us to, to get back into that... Um, framework. People simply believe that they, they were so surrounded by in art, in literature, in ceremony. They were so surrounded by evidence of religion, of Christian religion, that it, it was all, it really just didn't happen that they didn't believe. The only thing that you have really is small communities of Jews who were believers of a somewhat different stripe. You also have, um, especially as time goes on, you have the beginnings of what came to be viewed as heresy. You have Christian heretics who are believing in somewhat odd solutions to theological problems or what look odd to us now. But that's as far as it goes. You don't have genuine atheists. And I think that that's a result of uh, partly of the shortness of life. If you think you might be dead tomorrow, you may be much more likely to jump onto the belief train. But I think that what is even more likely is that the omnipresence of Christian myth within the medieval context made it very difficult for anyone to actually see outside that context. So basically for people at this time, religion completely structured their lives, you're saying? Yes, but not the way we would think of it as doing. It was much more ordinary for them. It was not 
something always on a very high level. They, for instance, could joke about it in a way that very few modern religious people would be willing to do. They had something called the Feast of Fools every year in which they brought a child or a fool into the church to portray the bishop and to act as the bishop for the day. Sometimes they even brought in an ass dressed as a bishop. I don't think that you would find something a, a ceremony like that going on at St. Patrick's Cathedral this year. I don't think the Pope would like that. No, I don't think the local ordinary would like it very much either. So, the, 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 you know, to say that, that religion structure in their lives makes, it, makes them all sound terribly solemn, they were not. They were much more like real insiders in the religion. There's a wonderful anti-clericalism that runs through medieval literature. They were constantly making fun of priests and particularly of bishops. And they were even making fun of their own sacred characters, you know, the the medieval mystery play in which Noah and his wife are on the ark and arguing with one another like any man and his wife might be arguing with one another. So they were religious, but they weren't that pious. They were not solemn. You might even say they were pious because they believed, uh, but they could have an awful lot of fun with these things in a way that I think would scandalize many religious people today. I want to talk a little bit more about um, about this emergence of powerful women thing, because I think it's an interesting contrast to the way that people tend to think about Christianity. How did that happen during this period, and why do you talk about it as being something that really started during the Middle Ages? Well, again, I'm not sure why it starts in a way, except that I do think it does start from the images of the Virgin Mary in churches, that this was a great shift. If you look at the history of Christian art, it really starts in Greece or and under the influence of Greece. The initial Christian art is really the art of the icon. You usually see a saint all by himself or sometimes, and not very often, herself against a gold background. The saint is not in conversation with anyone except maybe on occasion the devil but normally, the saint is looking at you in a rather sorrowful and serious and even disapproving way. That's Christian art to start with. When the artist tackled the subject of Christ himself, Christ was usually put in an apse at the very height of the church he was Christ the judge. He was looking down on you. His brow was immensely furrowed with disapproval. This is kind of tough stuff to live under. Then you have in the West, especially in, in Rome and Italy, a change that really begins in the 12th century, where these icons begin to be softened. Um, you see two people in conversation rather than one saint staring at you with disapproval. Um, sometimes they're even turned toward one another. This is an immense change to see 
saints in profile, as if they were normal, ordinary human beings in concert with other human beings, in interactions with other human beings. Then you begin to see Christ himself in such scenes, in profile, talking to others. These changes in the West are largely made possible by the new centrality of the figure of the Virgin and Child. The more we see of the Virgin and Child, the more we realize that these mysteries, these these unspeakable religious mysteries, are really about very ordinary things. Uh, so that they can be about things as ordinary as a woman taking care of a baby. They can be as ordinary as a woman offering her breast to the baby, which is shown again and again and again in Western medieval art. The mother holding her breast out to the baby. This is extraordinary because this was a scene that you could see everywhere. There wasn't a street that you walked down that didn't have a mother and a child in that configuration. So our ordinary lives are what is holy. And that means also that ordinary women are holy. And this is the beginning of a new way of looking at the world, which enables women to have a role that is at least virtually and potentially equal to that of a man. The book is called Mysteries of the Middle Ages, and I was speaking today with Thomas Cahill. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nora. And you can learn more about Thomas Cahill's work at thomascahill.com. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. A little later this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. That is ahead at 7.30. But first, another story about the ancient and the modern. Every spring before Passover, Coca-Cola plants in Chicago, New York, Atlanta, and other cities whip up a tiny batch of soda that's kosher for Passover. The run lasts about two weeks and has been known to sell out in less than 24 hours. But why is this Coke different from all the other Cokes? From Chicago, Laura Quirrell has more. It's not that 25-year-old Leah Silverman doesn't like Passover. It's just that when it comes to spending eight days commemorating the Israelites' exodus from Egypt through the desert, Silverman needs her Coke. I can't get through Passover without soda. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Silverman is an observant Jew in Chicago's west side. She is among the many people who buy a little-known concoction known in the soda biz as Passover Coke. In a way, Passover Coke is a throwback to the soda's early days, when the Coca-Cola company made its fizzy flagship drink with cane sugar. Well, king-size Coke has more for you. King-size Coke has more for you. Biggest value. In 1985, to save money, it switched over to corn syrup. For most of the year, that was okay. But on the eight-day Passover holiday, the Coke people had a problem. Corn syrup, they discovered, isn't kosher on Passover. That meant an estimated 700,000 Orthodox Jews couldn't have Coke for eight days. 
no Schlemiel's, the Coke people got an idea. For several weeks before the holiday, they would make a special batch of the original formula with pure cane sugar. And so, to the delight of Jews and Coke aficionados alike, Passover Coke was born. At Koltuv Kosher Foods in Chicago, where many observant Jews stock up on the Passover Coke, business is bustling on the day before Passover. Right now, I just I was in a rush. I bought like six bottles. I'll probably buy some more for the second half of the holiday. Chaim Noblik is the longtime owner of the grocery store. Coke's a very good mover, and uh, it continues to move very well for Passover as well. In between phone calls in his tiny paper-crammed office, he says this year he ordered his shipment of Passover Coke early. It's interesting. Someone from the south side buys like 20 cases at one time. It's like really weird. But that's a, that's a minority. Most people just buy it because even though there's other soda available from New York that's kosher for Passover, it doesn't taste anywhere as good as the Coke and Diet Coke does. So, you know, Coke is Coke, you know. For tips on where to find the elusive Passover Coke in your area, visit our website, interfaithradio.org. For Interfaith Voices, I'm Laura Correll. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show's available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org. We would love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a fabulous weekend. Every time they sang the part, Die Dayenu, they clap their hands. Can you do that too? This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.